Well, Liz is going to come and uh, read Psalm 126. That's the psalm we're looking at this evening. Um, psalm 126, and then Chris is going to come and, um, and, and, and uh, explain it to us. Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Good evening. So I'd like to start with a, uh, a bit of a, a guessing a song. It's rather obscure, so uh, maybe some of you will get this. Three lions on a shirt. Jules Rimet still gleaming. 30 years plus many more of hurt. Never stopped me dreaming. In case you didn't get the hints, it's, it's coming home. Mercifully, as English fans, maybe British, we've moved on to the athletics now, so we get to cheer something different. And if you would just indulge me a moment and put aside uh, the idolatry of this uh, worship of football, um, this song that we've just heard the lyrics of, it could easily be a parody of today's passage. For it looks back, it remembers a momentous event, and it draws its hearers to the hope of future success. But of course, 22 men kicking a bit of leather around a field uh, is nothing compared to God, who intervenes into history and into the redemption of his people. But there's something to be said about a song, isn't there? A song helps us to draw out emotion. It makes things more memorable, and it brings people close together. You might note above the reading today, it says, a song of ascents. Well, first, what does this mean? Well, the collection of the songs of ascent, which marks Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they journeyed up towards the temple in Jerusalem. And they may be called songs of ascent because it was as they pilgrimaged up to Jerusalem and Zion, which is, among other things, a reference to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It would be worth, at this point, just giving a little bit of recap of Old Testament history. This is where God had a people, and these people had a place. And while they were obedient and under God's rule, they prospered. And yet they became complacent. They forgot about their reliance on God. And they started worshipping false gods. And then at this point, God brought his judgment upon them. He allowed them to suffer. And hopefully this would lead to repentance and their return and restoration. And this is relevant because at this psalm, at the time it was written, the people of God were likely partially exiled as a result of God's judgment on them. Instead of God shielding his people 
from their enemies, their enemies were allowed to come and take them away en masse as they turned their back on God. Many psalms, this one being one of them, is a tool of remembrance. God's faithfulness in the past is recalled. And despite being delivered at an earlier point, further help is still needed. So as a result, in today's passage, we see a corporate lament which pleads to God. It calls on God to restore Israel, God's people, as he has done in the past. It's worth keeping hold of why we read the Psalms. Well, may I suggest that it's so that we may participate in them, we may pray them ourselves. So as well as learning what this psalm tells us, what it teaches us, we'll also have a look at what it means to pray this for ourselves. The passage, it splits into two main sections, one to three, four to six. The first part is a remembrance of an act of restoration in the past, and then also of a tearful sowing and joyful reaping in the second part of the psalm. And both of these things are very relevant to us here today. This is why we need to hear about this psalm. Remembering what God has done for us. Witnessing his deliverance. And looking forward to a future harvest. And more of what that entails later on. This should be at the forefront of our thinking. As believers and unbelievers alike. And though really brief, this psalm speaks really powerfully into our human condition and our divine hope. So the first of two points this evening. The first is remembrance and restoration. The Lord restores his people, bringing great joy. The Lord restores his people, bringing great joy. The psalmist begins Psalm 126 by recalling a time that the Lord restored the nation describing the Israelites' joy and the surrounding nation's awareness of God's power as a result. So let's look at it in a little bit more detail. From verse 1 it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. There's lots to take out here. There's restoration, there's reversal of fortune, and also what of Zion. Let's start there, shall we? Zion, it's It's an ancient name for various parts of Jerusalem, of Judah, and also of the whole land. And it's also a metaphor for the people of God, which is the use here. So this passage is describing a reversal of the people's experience of alienation from the Lord as a result of being exiled. The expression, restored the fortunes, essentially indicates that the Lord is returning something to the way it was before calamity happened. It probably indicates that the Lord has helped return the Israelites to Jerusalem after a period of exile, which is likely a a reference to the events of uh, 538 BC, where King Cyrus, who's in charge of the Israelites' captivity abroad, he allows a decree to allow those Israelites to return from Babylon. Next onto this expression, we are like those who dreamed. When we think of dreaming, we think maybe being in a bit of a daze, maybe a daydream state. But in the ancient Near East, dreams, they were understood to be a medium for divine revelation. 
a means to communicate what is about to happen or maybe what is already happening. So this statement, it should be read more as an announcement of the Lord's act of uh, of restoration uh, that was about to happen or even at hand. And there's an acknowledgement here also that the people, they're not the ones who had a hand in the reversal of fortunes. For example, when we dream at night, we don't really have control over what we think. We wake up, and it's then that we remember what we dreamt about. And so, too, it's as though these Israelites, the people who the psalm is talking about, suddenly awoke to realize that God had had restored them. God was at work, and they had no cause to take the credit for themselves. Throughout this psalm, we read about laughter, we read about singing, verse 2, rejoicing, verse 3, and these are all evidence of salvation, which the recipients, the Israelites in this case, have contributed nothing but the joy that came from it. Let's continue in verse 2, shall we? Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. The first half of this passage, it refers to the world stage. It's happening on the world stage. And here the effects of verse 1 and the transformation that we see there are revealed. Verse 2 said, they said among the nations. In other words, everyone was talking about it. And this reflects an Old Testament theme where the nations, they watch on and see what Israel is doing. And they see what happens to them as a reflection of who God is and also of their care for his people. So the fact that God's people have been dramatically restored from exile... And they're attributing it to their God. They're singing praise to him. And that people hear about that. That demonstrates that God is truly active. He cares for his people. He has done great things. And he does continue to do great things. And as we look at this passage in a contemporary context, we must hear the joy amid the weeping. Unless we mistake this joy as just being a happy emotion. We should read these verses against the backdrop of what the exile was really like, what was going on. Any of us familiar with the Old Testament books of the Bible and Lamentations in particular, you may recognize from the name of the book that it's not about a lot of joy, but it reflects these words about daughter Zion, in other words, God's people at this time. The poet describes bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. And then later on in the first chapter, eyes overflow with tears. You see the celebratory language that we read in the first half of this uh, chapter here in Psalm 126. It comes against this backdrop of lots of weeping. And this makes the transformation from sorrow to joy all the more compelling and significant. We too, we should remember what God has done for us and rejoice. And we too serve 
as a powerful witness to those around us about God's faithfulness and his goodness. The second point is reaping and rejoicing, reaping and rejoicing. So though we weep and toil, a joyful harvest awaits. While in the first set of three verses, they suggest that the Lord has demonstrated his power on the world stage, this second set of three verses concentrates on the effective power and nearness of the Lord to be experienced in everyday life by the community of God's people. And the simple agricultural terms and images that we read here provide really powerful and rich metaphors of hope. Let's look first at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. The reminder that we've had earlier of divine intervention has served as an encouragement to God's people. It served as an encouragement that, again, the Lord would intervene. And we note here the similarity between verse 1 and verse 3, verse 4 even. We have the past tense in verse 1, restored our fortunes. And this lies in tension with the implied future of verse 4, restore our fortunes. These repeated terms, they recognize that a work may have started, but it's, no, it's not complete. Remembering the work that God did for their forebears, God's people plead with God that he would do likewise now for them. We spoke earlier about captivity, and if it does just refer to captivity, then it could mean that not all the people had returned. So God's people are just saying, Lord, would you allow the rest of the people to return? But more likely, it looks to an event far, far in the future. This is where it's relevant for us too. What has happened has happened, but it's not been brought to completion. It is effective now, but it's not yet. Perhaps this reminds some of you of salvation. So you see, those who call on Jesus to be saved are saved. But we still live in a broken world. We still have an inclination to sin. We still turn against God. You see, we might be saved, but that doesn't make us perfect. There's this process of sanctification, this process of becoming more holy, more and more like Jesus. But it's not an instant process. And as the people of this psalm await a completion of their fortune, something that started but not finished, we too, we await Jesus' glorious return and the restoration of all things. We next we move on to a few metaphors that I mentioned earlier, the agricultural metaphors that illuminate this transforming power of God's hand of restoration. The second part of verse 4 says about the streams in the Negev, don't know how familiar you are with your topography in Israel. Thankfully, I've read about it a little bit. Uh, but there's streams here that can't really be called streams. They're more etches in the landscape because most of the time they are completely dry. And yet they become like raging, overflowing rivers in the rainy season. There's few places in the world that are more arid than the Negev. 
and few transformations are more dramatic than a dry gully turning into a raging torrent. And this can produce a massive transformation in the scenery, desert turned into grass and flower overnight. And we can look at this suddenness, this dramatic change that the wadis, these are the channels in the, in the landscape, that they swell in rain, and the depth and the power of these raging waters. If we look back a couple of chapters to 124, verse 5 speaks of a raging water that sweeps us away. But whilst there the water is seen as life-threatening, here it's life-giving power that is referred to. The people of God, they desire a sudden display of divine favor on them, of which God subsequently overwhelms them with blessings. The request in verse 4 by the people of God acknowledges that they have been experiencing a dry season and were in desperate need of the life-giving presence of God once more. And perhaps you too can relate. This prayer is one that we can empathize with, especially given the year that we've just had. The way that it highlights our need more than ever for God's life-giving presence with us day by day. On to our final two verses from verse 5. It says this, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. The Lord's people, they long for a further work of deliverance. And here they are instructed to sow with tears. We see two images here, don't we, of renewal from verses 4 to 6. And they're very contrasting, but they are also complementary. The first of them that we just looked at is the transformation of the wadi in the Negev. It's a suddenness, a sheer gift from heaven that suddenly arrives. But the second example here, it's slow, it's arduous, and it's with us, with man, having a crucial part to play. And we see this in, in terms of farming, which is heartbreaking. All of its joys are hard won, and they are long awaited. But although we look to literal farming and think, well, it's all very uncertain, isn't it? You plant your crop, you don't really know what you're going to get. Here in this harvest, in this sowing, there's a certain an assured harvest to come at the end. So this psalm, although it speaks to the people who originally heard it, it speaks to us still. These redeeming miracles that, that God gives in the past, we may treat as measures of the future. Dry rivers can be turned into potential rivers, or dry places into potential rivers. And hard toil and good seed can be an assured prelude to harvest. We see that what begins in verse 5 as weeping will end in rejoicing. God will come and he will restore his people such that the present moment, which may appear barren and much sorrow, will be transformed into a future that's filled with shouts of joy and arms full 
filled with the harvest. But it's only in a harvest that comes if a seed has been planted. You get no crop if you don't plant the seed. And weeping and all comes in with this. It's really important to note that joy comes with weeping. It comes amid weeping. As Henri Noyen says in his book, Turn My Morning Into Dancing, he says, by inviting God into our difficulties, we ground life, even in its sad moments, in joy and hope. See, weeping, it need not have the final word, not when we give it to God. So instead of being overwhelmed by circumstances and being hamstrung by sorrow and difficulties that we experience in life, we can persevere in planting, even through tears, knowing that to plant anything is an act of faith. While the end may not be known, we can trust that the result will come. What we see in this passage is that the people of God trusted that in the end, or the end, was safely and securely held in the hands of the Lord. And we too can hold on to that promise. So what does this planting and of seed mean to us? As most of us are probably not farmers. Planting the seed of the word of God, it includes sharing the word of God with others. This duty of testimony, sharing what God has done for us. But it neither begins nor ends there. We begin with this implantation of God's word in our hearts, but we're to be feeders on that, on what he has said to us. And as James 1 tells us, we're to be doers, not hearers only. We have the word in our heart, but we must diligently make sure that there is and will be a crop to be reaped. So we should remain disciplined in the task of sowing the word of God accepting hardships that come our way that may move us to tears and looking forward in faith to the day of loud shouts and abundant sheaves. In the meantime, we're to be prayerful people, people who pray akin to the original orators of this psalm. So many of us, I hope, I know, knowing so many of you, can recall God rescuing us from a helpless place and offering us his redemption. So hopefully we can echo the previous psalmist, Psalm 40, when it says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. This same God who has proven faithful in the past, he can be relied on to reverse a painful present. He can send rain of blessing, as it were, a crowning metaphorical work of sowing with a welcome harvest. And we can learn from the early church, who we read in Philippians 1 verse 6, were similarly urged to look away from suffering to glory with a conviction that the God who had begun a good work in them would faithfully bring it to completion. As it says, you will have sorrow now, Jesus said in John 16, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. What a wonderful demonstration we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus 
who lived this message out so wonderfully, who sowed in such great pain on the cross, taking the punishment that our sins deserved. And he did this as Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him. His expectation was not in vain. As we sing this song, this psalm together, we too are to be encouraged to keep sowing, even through tears, for the glory of Jesus who awaits.